I didn't know there were places that didn't have mail systems. I had envisioned that anything I needed and I didn't bring, I could order on Amazon and that they would deliver it. Well, there's no mail system in Honduras. Literally, they don't even use the Spanish word for mailman because they don't have them. Hey everyone, welcome back to Flourish in the Foreign, the podcast that elevates and affirms the voices and the stories of Black women living and thriving abroad. Why? Because we do this. We do this. I'm your host, Christine Job, a Black American living and thriving in Barcelona. And I am just so, so happy that you guys are back and listening to this episode. Thank you. I appreciate you. So before we even just like get started, <laughs> I got to talk to y'all. I don't really talk a lot on this podcast because it's all about the voices and the stories of the black women I interview. But I got to talk about this. I hate that I have to. As a black American, traumatic things happen to us, our community every single day. And these things are not recorded. They are not met with mainstream outrage. (laughs) That is what it is to be a Black American. In uh, these recent days, I think the world (laughs) has been shocked at the outrage of what's been happening, or at least what has come to the mainstream notice of what's been happening in the United States. And a lot of Black people, Black women, are understandably exhausted. To be a Black American is to be perpetually enraged, perpetually exhausted, perpetually experiencing deep, deep sorrow. And it makes you quite weary And so understandably, a lot of people are thinking about moving outside of the United States. And I think whatever reason you want to leave is fine. What I will say, though, is that there is no place in in the world that is a utopia. And I, I will be bold enough to say I don't think there's a place in this world that's a utopia for a Black woman, especially, And that's not to say there aren't lovely, fantastic places in this world and that there's not Black women living their best lives and doing the damn thing all around the world. That is clearly happening. That is what this podcast is showcasing. What I'm saying, though, is that in your preparation to to make this move and take this on, Just understand that there is no place that is a utopia, all right? There are so many different things to think about. When you move abroad, it's not just you taking your life minus racism and putting it down somewhere else. It's a whole different thing. There are so many different considerations to think about language, culture, lifestyle. I just want us to make smart choices. I want us to make really strategic choices for ourselves and our family. Moving abroad is one thing. Staying abroad is another thing. You know, the language and the feelings that I've been hearing sounds like y'all want to move abroad and stay abroad. So that's, that's why I'm, I'm saying that. I I just want y'all to take this energy like Black people always do and create something beautiful. That's what we always do. Out of treachery and ridiculousness and sadness and anger, we always create beauty. And I just want y'all to do that in this case, too. If you are seriously thinking about moving abroad and making that leap, please 
heed my words. If you want to chat about it, I'll chat about it with you for sure. Hit me up on the Flourish in the Foreign Instagram. Slide me a DM. Or you can go to the contact page on the website. I'll chat with you about it. I've actually chatted with a lot of people who were thinking about moving abroad earlier in this pandemic. So no worries. Okay. Okay. This week we have a fantastic story with Adelia. I really love this story because like I said earlier, it's not just about moving abroad. It's about staying abroad. And sometimes people move someplace and it didn't work out. And then they're like, oh, I guess I have to go home. No, you don't. No, you don't, you don't have to go home. <laughs> home is wherever you make it. And if you're really clear about your values, what you are trying to experience, what home really means to you, then one quote unquote bad experience will not deter you. It's just information, right? That contrast is just information for you to make a better, smarter, more strategic move. And I think this story really showcases that process. Adelia's story is amazing, but I'm going to let her tell you all about it. My name's Adelia Borshade. I am 45 years old. I moved abroad at age 41. I'm originally from Houston, Texas, and I currently live in Hefei, China. I've always loved maps. That was my favorite thing in elementary social studies. I also traveled not internationally, but I did travel as a child. I traveled as an unaccompanied minor multiple times. I think the idea of traveling has always been there. I had initially intended to do a study abroad program when I was in high school, but I'm an eternally practical person. I always joke that I was born middle-aged. Even in high school, I kind of thought to myself, well, you can do prom and graduation and all those things, or you can miss out on those because you want to study abroad. So I figured, okay, I'll do that in college. But I got married when I was 19, when I was a sophomore in college. So it just kind of got pushed down the line to some unknown point in the future. I think in my mind how it was going to go was that I was going to study abroad and then that would then springboard into living abroad. And when the study abroad did not happen, I sort of adapted and found opportunities um, to travel abroad through work. I didn't get my passport until I was 26. And that was because I was taking a group of kids to uh, Italy because I, I was a school teacher. I did a, a study tour in Germany that was paid for by the German government for U.S. social studies and history teachers. So I would find opportunities like that to kind of fill that, that desire. And then I think I really started to say, okay, how can I make this happen? in my late 30s. I was newly divorced and determined that I was going to live life on my terms and no longer push the things that I wanted to the back burner. And so that obviously meant I needed to figure out how I would get abroad. I wasn't sure if I was going to do it through working or what exactly. This is kind of when being a digital nomad was just becoming a thing. I didn't know if it would be something like that. Really, the, the easiest way to do it was to teach abroad because I already had 19 years of teaching experience. That would be the easiest way to go. I'll pursue that. Initially, I was kind of open to the entire world almost the entire world. There were a few places I was like, nah. But when I really thought about what do I want my new life to look like, there was this desire to learn Spanish. So I decided to focus my attention on Latin America 
and there just so happened to be a job fair for schools in Latin America being hosted in Houston. I applied and I went and got a job. My first job was in Tegucigalpa, Honduras. After Adelia decided to move abroad, to take the leap finally in her life, to put herself first, I was curious as to what her family and friends thought of her decision to up and move to Honduras. The people closest to me, because, you know, coming off of a divorce, he got the bulk of the people. So the people who were left, Team Adelia, they knew me. They knew that travel and living abroad was always a part of the plan. So for them, it was like, okay, this makes sense. My oldest daughter, I remember telling her that I was moving to Honduras and she said, oh, you mean Mexico? And I was like, no, Honduras. She was like, yeah, Mexico. So that's kind of the reaction. Most people just have no concept of Honduras. And I'll admit, I didn't know a whole lot because it's a small Central American country. Outside of that, I didn't really know too much. I couldn't do a lot of the kind of research people can do if they're moving to Dubai or they're moving to Mexico or someplace like that. There just wasn't a lot of information because the expat community there is small. It's primarily limited to people who work for NGOs, people who work for the State Department or military or you're a teacher. And then, of course, this was at a time when Honduras did not have a strong reputation for safety. Landing in Honduras was kind of like walking into the unknown. The bulk of my luggage did not make it. We had a very tight connection in San Salvador, and my luggage did not make it. Very few people spoke English. I was just kind of being flexible and rolling with it. One of the issues with Tegucigalpa and why I knew I couldn't live there long term is because I I do travel quite a bit and the airport there is very small. It's one of the top 10 most dangerous airports in the world because it's built on the side of a cliff and you have to fly down through mountains to land there. It's a whole thing. There's not a lot of international flights. It's kind of expensive to fly there. That was an issue. And the way I wanted to live life where I could easily access mass transit, I didn't want to own a car. And living in Tegucigalpa, you really needed a car. The other kind of life lesson I got was in understanding logistical infrastructure. I didn't know there were places that didn't have mail systems. I had envisioned that anything I needed and I didn't bring, I could order on Amazon and that they would deliver it. Well, there's no mail system in Honduras. Literally, they don't even use the Spanish word for mailman because they don't have them. Trying to get around was a challenge because there is no public transit. Street names are rarely used and there are no street addresses. How I would normally navigate when I travel, whereas I would put something in Google Maps and either take a bus or take the metro, that was out. I could not give the taxi driver direction somewhere because I can't say it's on this street at this number because they don't use that system. So imagine I don't speak Spanish and I'm trying to tell this person where I need to go, but I've got to describe the location of the place, but I've never been there. There were those kinds of challenges. I often refer to Honduras as being an inconvenient place to live. It wasn't a bad place to live, but a lot of the conveniences that I had grown accustomed to living in the United States simply didn't exist there. At the time, Adelia's youngest daughter was a high school student in Texas. And I was really interested in knowing how she convinced her to move with her and what her daughter's experience was as an American teenager 
moving to Honduras. She initially had no interest in coming abroad. My initial plan was to wait until she had graduated high school. And a big thing that had changed for me personally was that I just was no longer putting up with things that did not serve me. If something was making me unhappy, I no longer would say, well, just stick it out until blah, blah, blah. When I had decided that I would pursue teaching in another country, I made the offer to her because her father and I shared custody and she was like, thanks, but no thanks, I will stay here. She eventually changed her mind. I was like, think of it as sort of your own study abroad in high school. You don't have to move out of the US for the rest of your life. You can try this for a year. If you like it, you can stay with me. If you don't, you can come back and stay with your dad. And so she had a ball. She had a blast. From a a parent school perspective, she got the kind of attention from her teachers that would have never been possible at the high school that she attended before. You couldn't not do your work. There weren't 30 kids in the classroom to hide from the teacher anymore. And she also had teachers who did really creative things. She took classes she would not have taken in the States. She took sociology and psychology. She had a cool little social circle. They were always going somewhere, doing something, having a get together, having a dinner party. So for her, it was a very cool experience and actually kind of ended up shaping what she chose to major in at university because she already had an interest in agriculture. And one of her friends there, their parent worked for USAID and worked with local farmers and sustainable farming and that sort of thing. And she developed an interest in that. For her, it was a good experience and she contemplated staying on because my initial contract was for two years and she contemplated staying, but she really had her heart set on raising a pig to show at the county fair. And so she decided to go back to Texas so she could do that. At the time of Adelia's move to Honduras, she was an experienced school teacher. So I needed to know, did she like her job? How was the staff? How was the school? I wanted to know all of it. I took a 60% pay cut to work there. I mean, I knew that. No one moves to Latin America for the money unless you are being transferred by some large multinational corporation. Wages are not what they are in the rest of the world, especially for international teaching. But my day was pleasant, very casual. The interactions between local staff and foreign staff was good I think partially because the school was so small and when I say small my daughter was a sophomore there were seven children in the 10th grade so very small school the school provided transportation so that was one less thing I had to try and navigate Uh, the people the people were the people were great my students were great so working there working there was fine. My contract was for two years. I was hired to be the instructional technology coordinator. It was a non-teaching position, but I did also teach one section of a AP class because I had a lot of AP experience. My position was new and turns out that the school funding really wasn't there to support that position so the school needed to restructure some things and when they approached me with their plan to restructure I was not particularly interested in it because it would have increased my workload by five uh, for the same pay. So I said no thank you to the new restructuring and they released me because they couldn't honor my initial contract the way it was written because of their financial situation. And so this would have been late March, April. And of course I had not been looking for another job because I had another year on my contract and I really didn't want another job. After being released from her contract, 
Adelia had to decide what she was going to do next and where she wanted to go. I thought about it and I was like, "Mm, maybe I won't look for a job and I'll take some time off. Maybe I'll retire. I, I wasn't sure. I had been country shopping for my next country after Honduras and I had summer plans to try out a few countries and one of those was Mexico and so when I wasn't going to have a job I was like okay we'll just turn that trip into moving to Mexico. Being there in Honduras helped me refine my list of what did I want out of a country, out of a place to live. Mexico City seemed like a really good choice. It would allow me to be a two-hour flight away from my children in Houston. And it's a dog-friendly place because I also have my dog with me. So that's kind of how I, I landed on it. And then when I visited that summer, I fell in love with it and was like, yep, this is the perfect place for me. I'm trying not to just gush about Mexico City, but I think the fact that I have a tendency to do that tells you that it it was really the right choice for me. There's so much culture, so much to do, so much to see, so much history, incredible food. The people were great. It was the kind of place that I had always wanted to live. I could navigate it easily by myself. And really, that's what I did. When I moved to Honduras, the school found an apartment for me. They negotiated with the landlord, all of that. I had to do all of that stuff on my own. I enrolled at the university to take Spanish classes. I ended up in a roundabout way teaching a little bit of business English and I got to meet more locals doing that. I was able to travel from Mexico City to a variety of places in Mexico and around the world. It was a really good year. It it ended up sort of being a grown-up gap year for me, a sabbatical, because initially I had no plans to leave. I was putting things into place to establish residency and my intention was just to be like okay this is my base I'll be here some things changed for me financially and I decided well maybe I should go back and teach for a couple of years stack a little bit of money and then come back to Mexico I ended up leaving Mexico after about a year and a few months after an incredible stint in one of her favorite places in the world She decides that she needs to get back on the road and continue working for at least a couple more years. And where she ends up is almost as shocking as her experience in this new place. I accepted a job in Kuwait. (laughs) I'm trying not to use words like disaster and doomed but moving to Kuwait, that was an ill-advised move. And I, I knew it probably was, but I strongly believe that the universe tends to unfold as it should. And the way things were unfolding, it seemed like I was supposed to take that job. The visa process, the work visa process for wealthy Middle Eastern countries is a lot different than it is in Latin America. In Latin America, or like in Honduras, where I showed up on a tourist visa and the school walked me through getting my residency in Mexico, the situation isn't that complicated, but you do have to apply outside the country. For Middle Eastern countries, it's a whole thing. You've got to have a physical, you've got to have a background check, they've got to validate your degree, all of this stuff. And they wanted me there in time for school to start, but because the visa process takes two months, that wasn't going to happen. On top of that, there was some holiday, I think it was Eid. So that delayed things. I arrived in Kuwait just after midnight. By 9 a.m. the next morning, I had reported to work and already knew I had made a mistake and strongly considered 
figuring out a way to get back to the apartment to grab my bags and just go back to the airport. And then I talked to myself and was like, well, you moved all the way over here. At least give them a chance. Kuwait is not an attractive place to live. It doesn't have any of the things that I want out of a destination. The cost of living is high. The only thing it did have going for it was its location because it would be easy to travel to other countries from there. That's kind of the thing that helped me stick around for a little while. But eventually things got unbearable. The HR policies were punitive. They were making up HR policies that didn't uh, exist. They were engaging in unethical behavior that I believe was probably illegal. And then they started messing with my money. Kuwait is not the most welcoming place for foreigners, which is a bit ironic given that their population is so small. They depend on foreign workers to run their country but consistently Kuwait is ranked as one of the least friendly countries for expats every year. The ethnic diversity and racial diversity of the foreigners there I guess that you could say that's one of Kuwait's selling points. There were quite a few black people, black Americans even, who worked at the school where I worked and I connected with people in the black community and my experience was not uncommon. I I had to come back to the United States anyway because I had a trip planned for New Year's and I just made sure that I bought a one-way ticket and I left. Adelia leaves Kuwait tired over it. And in the midst of this unexpected uncertainty, she gets a surprising offer for her next move. Because I had taken a year off, I just was kind of like, okay, we'll pretend that this nonsense of Kuwait didn't happen. And this will just be another part of my sabbatical. I was making plans to apply at quality schools for the upcoming school year and I figured that maybe until that came through I would probably go back to Mexico City and just live life there until I landed a job because staying in the United States was problematic because of the cost of living because of the cost of health care I can't afford to be sick in the United States and it just so happened that as I was in transit on my trip I was offered a the position that I have now that honestly I can't actually remember applying for I, I doubt I applied for this job because China was not on my list. It was a place I was actively trying to avoid. I had no interest in coming to China. I had visited twice and one of those visits was extended because the high school I used to work at in Texas had a uh, sister school program with a school in Foshan in the south of the country and so I'd spent an extended amount of time at a Chinese high school and knew that's not where I wanted to be. But the initial job offer was for four months and it was an opportunity to teach career development and career planning which was something I kind of did with kids but not officially before so I was intrigued by that and I came after coming off of the debacle in Kuwait thinking like if I get here and these people aren't right I'm leaving immediately that much I knew for sure but obviously they were okay because I'm still here. (laughs) China, so big, so vast. I had to know what was her overall impression and experience in China? I have been in China for about 14 or 15 months. I got here last February. That contract went through June and then I renewed for another year. Basically, in China, I am functionally illiterate. I cannot read. I cannot write. I can't even speak the language. And because this place has so few foreigners, English is not widely used. So if you go into a restaurant, there is no English menu. There is no picture menu. 
all of the menus have Chinese characters. From the beginning, that was a struggle. In international teaching, you get paid once a month. You get paid at the end of the month. I came at the end of February, so I had to go a month before I got paid. Fine. I have money in my American bank account. Well, here's the funny thing about that. You can't use credit cards here. Nobody uses credit cards. They all pay through their phone. You can't get the phone payment system set up until you have a bank account. That's a whole thing. I'm used to being a very independent person and I've had to lean on people more here than other places. It's been more difficult to, to navigate. When I extended the contract, I felt confident in doing so. I think the problem was I spent the summer in Mexico and was reminded of what I was missing. Even coming back here, I was like, okay, cool. I do this for a year and then we figure out what's next. But like the minute I landed at the airport, all the things that I dislike about this country all hit me at once. And I was like, oh my gosh, what have I done signing up for another year of this? Since I got back in August, I knew I would be leaving in June. The, the pandemic doesn't really play a role in that. Although Adelia does not live in the same province as Wuhan, I wanted to know about her experience dealing with the pandemic living in China. So our big break for the semester was for Chinese New Year. I flew to Europe on January 13th. And technically, there was already talk about the a virus in Wuhan. But I can tell you that when I was boarding my flight uh, to London, it wasn't on my radar. The month that I spent in Europe, a couple of my friends would send an article and be like, you know, I don't know if this is near where you are in China, but you know, be careful when you go back, blah, blah, blah. And of course, things blew up and escalated to the point that I almost got stranded in Europe because my flight got canceled and I was supposed to come back February 6th. And they were like, well, we might be able to get you back in March. Not sure. So I did end up getting another flight on a different airline and I got back February 11th. And so when I arrived, it was in the middle of what they call the epidemic prevention period, which is basically the lockdown. It was a very surreal thing to come back to because I landed in Shanghai and our flight was the only one landing. So one of the world's busiest airports was basically empty. From the airport, I needed to take the metro to the train station to get the train station back to this city. The Shanghai metro was virtually empty. This is a place that is always packed with people. There were a few restaurants open that tended to be big chains like McDonald's and that's the first time that you know I had to do the temperature check and I had to sign in on the paper with my cell phone number I didn't realize it at the time but that was the beginning of contact tracing I got on the train I got back to the city there were taxis waiting so I didn't have any issues getting to my apartment complex now getting into the apartment complex that was a little tricky because I don't speak Chinese and they don't speak English and in my absence they had developed a system where residents were given tickets to leave their apartments so let's say you left to go grocery shopping you got three tickets a week so that you they could keep you in the house well I didn't have any tickets and the guy just couldn't understand what I was trying to tell him and I had no proof that I lived here other than my key I just happened to look up that someone came behind me and she spoke a little bit of English and she was able to get us sorted and they eventually let me in the apartment complex and were like stay in your apartment for 14 days no one was allowed inside an apartment complex that didn't live there so any food deliveries any groceries all that stuff was dropped at the gate and you had to go get it that's what I came back to and that lasted probably six weeks after I got here. Adelia has lived in many countries and she's traveled to many more and I needed to know what had been her experience as a black woman 
abroad. Most places I have lived and visited, I don't feel the weight of being a black person. And I say weight because that's what it feels like in the United States. I, I don't feel that. I have noticed that in places where society is less homogeneous in a Kuwait, in Mexico, in Honduras, places where there are a variety of people, I definitely feel more at ease because I'm less othered there. I think that's been one of the biggest negatives of my experience here in China, even in Europe. When I, I was in Europe for winter break, it's obvious I'm not from Romania or Ukraine where I was, but I wasn't othered the way I am here. Where I live, there is me and the Nigerian gentleman that I work with. We are probably the only black people for many, many kilometers. I take that back. At one of the other schools nearby, there's two black Americans. I think the estimate is that there might be 5,000 foreigners in this city of 7.8 million people. And I will be the first to admit that maybe if I lived in some place like Shanghai, there would be more foreigners, there would be more people who look like me. But here in this city, I can never not draw attention. Most places that I have lived, it's more I've had to deal with the American privilege than having my race be an issue. I'm not going to say nobody cares that I'm black, but the fact that I'm an American trumps that. It outweighs that, and that then becomes the focus. And not necessarily a negative focus. A lot of it is curiosity as to why an American chose to be in those places, in those spaces. I will say living in Kuwait was the first time I ever got the, well, where are you from? And then I tell them, and they're like, no, but where are you really from? I had never had that experience before. And that was one that opened my eyes up to the fact that while people like Will Smith and Beyonce may be global stars, a lot of people don't understand that Americans aren't all white. I would not say that being black has been a negative or been an issue. And I only say that because being black in the United States is an issue. It, it does come with negative baggage associated with it, you know? I wanted to know how the politics of each country has affected Adelia while she's been abroad. And I was also curious as to see if the politics of her home country, the United States, had affected her while she was abroad. I will say that it can be frustrating at times because I can't tolerate injustice and things like that. So having to sit on my hands and keep my mouth shut when I lived in Honduras because the government was doing janky things, that was very frustrating. But that's not my country. Legally, I'm not allowed to say anything. I'm not allowed to do anything. I'm not allowed to protest. So I can't interject in their political situation. That is a, a little frustrating, but I mean, I understand why I can't. Um, here, it's the opposite. I don't want to have anything to do with <laughs> local politics. I am trying my best to stay under the radar. I don't want anything that will draw their attention to me. I don't know if people realize this, but China uses exit bans just because you want to leave doesn't mean you can leave they can decide mm, no you're not leaving today and they can decide to keep you for whatever reason I'm very conscious of this being an authoritarian government and what that means and how my behavior needs to be modified but I will say that in both Mexico and Honduras, I felt a connection to the local political issues. And I think it's because they were issues that even if I hadn't lived there, they were issues that mattered to me. 
I work with many South Africans and they're here because the situation in their country is difficult. A lot of people have a very high opinion of life in the United States. This is why as an American living abroad, people often look at us like, well, why, why are you here? Why aren't you in America? Like I'm trying to get to your country. And what this current situation has exposed are all the things that I dislike about the country. The South Africans I work with are having this conversation like, can you believe the wealthiest country in the world doesn't have blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, yeah, that's why I don't live there. I asked Adelia to break down her experiences with the healthcare system of each country that she's lived and what were her general impressions of each. The healthcare system that has been interesting. I have not yet lived in a country that has a single payer healthcare system. Every country I've lived in has kind of had a, a, a two level system like public hospital and private. Honduran hospitals were plagued with shortages and that's part of bigger issues at play there. In Mexico, I could get top-notch care at very reasonable prices. I did not have health insurance. When I move back, I will. In Kuwait, quality care was available. My only real complaint, and this had more to do with my employer, was their policies that if you, let's say you were sick, you want to use a sick day, you had to go to the doctor and you had to get a letter, but just the letter from the doctor wasn't good enough. Someone at the hospital had to sign the letter to vouch for the doctor, but then somebody from the Ministry of Health had to sign the letter to vouch for the hospital and the doctor. And all of that process could take like weeks just so you would not be docked a day of pay to use a sick day that was supposed to be a benefit. One of the things that Kuwait was in the process of doing, I don't know if they did, but they wanted to restrict access to public hospitals so that foreigners could not go. Again, that just feeds to their reputation of being unfriendly to expats. And then here in China, Whew. I have made it my goal to stay away from the healthcare system here for several reasons. In order to get your visa, you have to do a physical, okay? But then when you get here, you also have to do a physical, you have to do blood work. There's probably a pregnancy test too because you're not allowed to become pregnant. The facility, it's a government facility. The level of cleanliness, the... Let's just say it wasn't run in the manner that I had grown accustomed to in Western facilities. And I knew right there that I did not want to be in any form of a Chinese hospital. If I were to get sick, I have insurance. I think I can go to private. One of my coworkers has four kids, so he has navigated the healthcare system here quite a bit. Some of it successfully, some of it not so successfully. China and Honduras would probably be the lowest on my list, but for different reasons. I'm always curious about the tax implications abroad. I know, very nerdy, but also very important and something that a lot of people don't consider until Uncle Sam or whatever country's equivalent comes a knocking. So I had to ask her, how had she managed her tax obligation around the world? Well, in Honduras, it was easy because teachers don't pay taxes. <laughs> in Mexico, you are only taxed on the economic activity that takes place in the country. So when I was teaching business English, because I was working for a language school, they paid my taxes. If I had been freelancing, I would have needed to pay taxes to SAT myself. And, and then in Kuwait, of course, they don't, they don't have an income tax. They don't need one. And here, the Chinese, they're sticklers about money laundering because they don't want people moving money offshore and them not getting their cut. My school pays 
my taxes but it becomes an issue if you want to go through official channels to move your money out of the country let's say you want to do a bank wire you have to provide tax documents that show you've paid taxes on the money you're trying to send out of the country this is the first place I've ever had those kinds of issues moving money around. As far as paying my US taxes, I do that the same way I did before. I use Tax Act. You know, it walks you through, it'll say like, did you live abroad? And you say yes, and then it walks you through the thing. Because up to, what is it, like $105,000 of foreign earned income can be exempt from taxation as long as you meet the residency requirements. It's really, it's a formality. I don't intend to go back to the United States, but just on the off chance that I might, I don't want Uncle Sam breathing down my throat, so I make sure that I file my taxes every year. I Asked Adelia what would be her advice for women wanting to not only move and live abroad, but truly thrive abroad. And she gave some really amazing dollars and cents advice. First thing you got to think about it, what are your priorities? What's important to you? Because that's where you're going to spend your money. For me, travel is a priority. However, I need to, I will downsize other areas of my life and spend less money so that I have the money I need to travel with. If it's really important that you have designer clothes, as one of my favorite finance gurus says, you can afford anything, not everything. What are the things that matter? You wanna retire, when do you wanna retire? If you want to retire sooner, that's going to require a much more aggressive plan with the saving and the investing to make that happen. If you're not willing to give up some creature comforts to make that happen, okay, then you got to change your timeline. For the women that want to stay abroad, here's the thing. We have no safety net. And I'm very much speaking from a personal experience because as a public school teacher in Texas, I never paid into Social Security. So there is no Social Security for me. I know a lot of women go abroad. They're using the money that they make to finance their current lifestyle and maybe anticipate I get Social Security and I can use that to retire on. Well, the more time you are out of the country, you are not contributing to Social Security. So you may not qualify for it at all, or you may not qualify for the amount you thought you would have had you continued to work in the US. If you're somebody like me, like you are a school teacher, Unless you taught for a long time in the U.S., it is highly probable that you will not be receiving any kind of retirement benefits from the United States. So that means it's all on your shoulders and you have to do some investing for that. The easiest thing to do, I'm all about keeping everything simple. Now, if you are somebody that's got a mind for numbers and you love research, fine, go out there, invest in individual stocks. But if you would rather spend your time doing other things, I know I would, all you need is a couple of index funds that track a large market index. You want to make it really simple, get a total stock market index fund and invest your money in that. Every month, put so much in. It can be in a normal taxable investment account because being outside the United States, if you are exempting your foreign earned income, you can't contribute to a Roth IRA. You can't do a traditional 401k because that's pre-tax money. And if you're not working for a US employer, you don't have that option. Now, if you work for a corporation, this may be different. My experience is with teaching and education. A lot of these schools will have quote unquote retirement programs, which are really just scams, or they are very, very pricey. You end up paying more than you end up making. I, I like to be in control of my money. <laughs> that way, if it all goes down the drain, at least I know I'm the reason it went down the drain. You need to be investing in something that might be stock, that might be real estate, but a saving will not make you rich. You won't beat inflation saving money. Saving is for short-term things like that trip to Spain. 
that's for saving. Investing is how am I going to live when I don't want to work anymore? I always like to tell people you need to have at least three pots of money. You need to have like your oh shit money. Like I got to get up out of this country right now. Like I did in Kuwait. You need to have your, your, your FU money. Like I'm tired of all y'all. I'm quitting. I'm out. I don't need this job. And then you need to have like your hell yeah money. Like, oh, we're going to the south of France next weekend. And instead of thinking, do I have a credit card, blah, blah, blah. No, I got my hell yeah money. Like, hell yeah, I'm going with y'all to the south of France. Think about your money in those different pots. And how can you add to that? How can you help those pots grow? When I was still in the U.S., I I came to the realization that the life I wanted, I could not afford to live in the United States because as a public school teacher, I didn't have the earning potential that would be necessary. I'd been married for 20 years, and the person I was married to, our money styles were not the same. So where... I might have been a much more aggressive saver and investor because I had to take somebody else into consideration. That didn't happen. I kind of felt I could have been in a better situation. The life I wanted to lead, I could not afford in the United States. That was just one more reason to go abroad. And then all of a sudden, my money could go so much further. I have always been a saver. I'm self-taught for the most part when it comes to investing. Although I am working on my certification in personal finance counseling, I was already thinking about financial independence, retire early, and how I could make that work. I used some of that knowledge and that planning to figure out, okay, how much longer would I need to work? Where can I live? And so I used that in my country shopping as I was doing my research and figuring out which countries might be the best ones for me I had the idea of countries I thought might be nice like for instance I thought Switzerland that might be a nice place and then I researched that in order to get a retirement visa in Switzerland you need to have an annual income of a hundred thousand dollars income not net worth not savings but an income I was like okay Switzerland doesn't want poor people I can't live there I had to adjust and figure out and and that's one of the things that makes Latin America attractive Malaysia was another place on my list I visited Malaysia a couple years ago and decided that I probably wouldn't want to live there although I lived in Houston my entire life I have had enough heat so Malaysia and Thailand were both at the top of my list and as much as I enjoy Thailand I don't want to live in that heat all year long right now like Portugal I wouldn't mind being in Europe again for travel opportunities the ability to have health care but learning Portuguese might be an issue I have residency in Mexico So I will be returning to Mexico, Mexico City, when I leave here. My final destination, that is still up in the air. But I have very much thought and planned and am planning, looking at my finances and what that's going to look like and what can I do with what I have and what I will have. I, of course, asked Adelia about her personal definition of wellness and how her travels abroad had changed that concept of wellness for her. My definition of wellness is state of contentedness, whether you're talking about mental, physical, financial, like, hey, I'm good. This is all good. It's all okay. I'm whatever this is, I'm not stressing about it. And living abroad was the last thing that freed me up completely from sort of like the rat race culture that exists in America, the consumerism and that sort of thing. For me, my wellness was impacted by living in a place where that was the focus. 
as I've moved abroad, I've created a life that is not centered on that, that is instead centered on experiences and exploring and pursuing the things that I enjoy, my quality of life is so much better. Somebody asked on Twitter, like, what are you afraid of? And I thought about it and I was like, I don't have that fear of anything. Oh, what if this happens? Or what if that? I don't have any of that. The absence of those things in that state of contentment, that for me is wellness. And I've been able to achieve that living abroad because it gave me the freedom to craft the life that I wanted, the life that fits me. Thank you so much, Adelia. Such great advice and definitely follow Adelia's journey. I have my website, which is uh, pickygirltravelstheworld.com. That's kind of like everything is there. I am on social media. I'm on Instagram and there is a Facebook page. Both of those are Picky Girl Travels. If you are a black woman who likes to solo travel, I have a Facebook group called Solo Sisters. It's a network for black female solo travelers. And then I also am on Twitter, although I don't really know what the hell I'm doing on Twitter. And there it is picky girl with no I travels. So it's G-R-L, picky girl travels on Twitter with no I. So yeah, if somebody is curious as to what shenanigans I'm up to, that's where they can find me. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to share it. And Adelia has shared so many great tips on her travels, but particularly she had amazing advice for people who have pets, specifically a dog, and want to bring their dog abroad. I'm going to play a snippet of it now, but if you'd like to hear the entire conversation about moving your pet abroad, please be sure to subscribe to the Patreon because it'll be a bonus episode for our Patreon subscribers. Here's a short snippet. She did not get a chance to come to Kuwait because I wasn't there long enough. But yeah, she went to Honduras. She went to Mexico. She went to Mexico with me over the summer. So I flew back from China to the U.S. I picked up the dog. We flew to Mexico. She traveled with me in Mexico. And then she came here to China. Generally, countries will require some kind of health certificate to prove that the animal is healthy and that they've got certain vaccines, you know, rabies and maybe something else, depending if the country has something special going on. Some countries require quarantine. And that is a non-negotiable for my dog. So you can become a Patreon member by going through the Flourish in the Foreign Patreon site, which is patreon.com slash flourish foreign. And this allows you to contribute to the show monthly. It basically works like this. Patreon will automatically take out whatever you choose to donate at the first of the month, ranging from one euro to as many euros as you like. And based on the level of support is the level of content that you can receive from the podcast. That includes community access at the first level, bonus episodes at the second level, and at the third level, behind the scenes content and live Q&A sessions with some of our amazing podcast guests. Please consider joining the Patreon community. And if you choose to support the podcast through Patreon, I will, of course, shout you out here on the podcast. Now, onto the non-monetary ways to support the podcast, which, of course, is equally as important. Please shout out the podcast on social media. You can tag the podcast across Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. The handle is at Flourish Foreign. Let people know what you think about the podcast, why you like it. Please review the show. Give it five stars on Apple Podcasts. And of course, subscribe to the podcast so that when any new episode drops, you will get it automatically. If there's a blog or there's a magazine that you like, why don't you go ahead and tell them that they need to check out Flourish in the Foreign. Why don't you tell them that they need to include Flourish in the Foreign on their summer or whatever time you're listening to this podcast list. Why don't you go do that too? 
That will be so, so helpful. That's how you can support and show love to this podcast. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And of course, all these ways of support really helps to get the word out, right? That's the whole point, is getting the word out so that more women, more Black women can see themselves doing it abroad. That's the whole point. So thank you so, so much for your support. Thank you so much for really believing in the elevation of Black women's voices and stories and knowing that Our voices and stories need to be heard and they need to be told by us. Thanks again to Zachary Higgs, who produced the music of this podcast. If you want to learn more about him and how he can help your podcast and your YouTube channel, I'll put all of his information in the show notes below. All right. Until the next time. Bye. On the next episode of Flourish in the Foreign. And I think maybe if you spoke to a Canadian woman, they'll be like, what are you talking about? Like, we got swag. Your men don't have swag. They've got Drake swag, but to us, it's corny. And I don't think this is only my experience. Speaking to other friends I've met that have moved here, that is their one complaint about finding a man in this city. 